All right. Well, let's pray together. So, Father, we've gathered again now in your name. And we pray that you would be present here with us as you promised to be. We pray, Holy Spirit, not just that you would teach your word through me, but that you would prepare all of our hearts to receive your word. Holy Spirit, give power to comprehend what your word teaches us and then power to apply it, power to live underneath it, under its authority, knowing that that is what is best and good for us. Father, we pray that you'd meet us here in this place. We want to consider the incarnation, that you have become man. What does that mean for us? It's a profound mystery, and so we pray that you would empower us to understand more deeply today so that we might become more generous. Would you mark us as a people by our generosity, the generosity of our love, the generosity of our affection, of our praises. May we be a generous people. Lord Jesus, guide and direct us now. We love you. Have your way with us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we will be. And if you've been with us in this journey through 2 Corinthians, you remember that last week we hit chapter 8 and we kind of slowed down because it's the Advent season and we're thinking about Christmas coming. And normally we would just depart from our typical series to think about that. But chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians just gave us a great opportunity to think about the incarnation and how it produces generosity. And we talked about that last week. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon this week, I thought about um, Chris Dolson, who's a pastor in our denomination and a friend of mine. He talks about two different types of appeals for generosity. And I thought they're really helpful as I thought about them again this week. He says that there, are, there is the moralistic type of appeal for generosity, and then there's the gospel type of appeal for generosity. Let me tell you what the moralistic appeal for generosity looks like typically. And I, I guarantee you, you've been approached this way about giving to something, right? It looks like this. You have, they don't have. If you're a good person, then you will give. You guys, you've felt that one before? You've been there for that one? Now, that may seem all well and good. It's, it's logical, right? If I have, they don't have, there's a need, I can meet that need. But what that essentially does, that type of appeal for generosity, is it appeals to our sense of our own goodness, doesn't it? If I'm good, and I'm good, so I will give, right? So it either shames and, and heaps guilt, or it reinforces your own self-righteousness. Either way, you're in trouble. Either way, it's not a very fruitful endeavor. But there's a different way that the Bible appeals to us to be a generous people. And it's what we call a gospel-centered appeal for generosity. And it's what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that we read last week, and we're going to read again this week. A gospel-centered appeal for generosity doesn't say you, you have, they don't have. If you're good, then you'll give. What the gospel approach to generosity says is this. You've been given the greatest gift the world has ever known, and it has changed who you are. Therefore, be who you are in light of the needs you see around you. Do you see the difference? A gospel appeal for generosity says God has done amazing things. Now live as if he's done amazing things. He has changed who you are at a very fundamental core level. Now be that. Live that out. The difference is that type of appeal to generosity doesn't reinforce and trap me in my own self-righteousness. It reminds me of God's righteousness and his goodness, and it compels me to give in accordance with who God is and what he's done. 
And my hope is that our church, as we appeal to your generosity, whether it be financial or time in any capacity, that you will always find that what we will, we will appeal to is the gospel itself. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about one specific aspect of the gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we're typically thinking of the fact that Jesus came and died for our sins and he rose from the dead. That's how we sort of synopsize the gospel often. But the incarnation really is the beginning of the gospel. Incarnation is just the word we use in the church for God becoming a man, for God becoming human. And when Jesus became a human being, left heaven and his eternal existence with the Father in perfect glory for all eternity past and put on humanity and came into the world to rescue us and redeem us, that's what we call the incarnation. And the gospel begins with the incarnation, right? Because if he doesn't become man, he can't die on the cross and he can't rise from the dead to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us to God the Father. And so when Paul focuses in on the incarnation in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's doing so to appeal to us about becoming generous people. Now, last week, let's look at at verse 9 again. Let me read it for you. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Let's pause there. That's what we focused on last week. When you came in, we said, look, what this is telling us is that we are meant to have gratitude generated in us by the reminder that Jesus Christ, by becoming human, became poor. He became impoverished. And we went through five different ways, five different aspects uh, by which Jesus became poor. And when we see that, when we see that the incarnation meant an, an abundance of poverty for Jesus in comparison to how he had lived for eternity past prior to becoming human, There's this sense of generosity that wells up within us. Now, what I said I would do this week and what I want to take us further into now is the second half of that verse where it says this. Not only did he become poor, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And that's the other side of the equation. Not only are we meant to feel and experience a deep sense of gratitude that Jesus Christ has left his eternal home in heaven put on flesh so that we might be reconciled to God, not only are we meant to feel that, we're also meant to understand that that produces immense riches for us. He is appealing to us and saying, you have been made exceedingly wealthy in Jesus. Exceedingly wealthy in Jesus. Wealthier than you could have ever hoped for or imagined. And he's appealing to that, not just so that, be, so that we would have gratitude towards Jesus for what he's done, but also so that we would see what we have, what we have in Jesus. And so we want to spend a little time today thinking about how it is that we have become rich. Perhaps a simpler way to put it might be this. We want to show you, we want to show you how rich you have become in Jesus so that you will know that you can be exceedingly generous in every area of your life and never lack anything. Because that's what prohibits our generosity often, isn't it? We're afraid that if I give too much away, there will be nothing left. And we're thinking to ourselves, I've got to kind of guard against that. But what we're meant to understand, according to the riches we have in Jesus, is that you can give and give and give, and you will never exhaust your eternal wealth in Jesus Christ. And when we understand how rich we've become in Jesus, we become generous people because our faith wells up. I thought about it like this. Um, if you follow the news, if you like read Harvard Business Review or anything like that, you you may have read that Harvard uh, took a huge loss in their endowment this year. Anybody read about that? 
lost almost $2 million, one, or billion, $1.8 billion loss this year for Harvard and all their investments with their endowment. That's pretty, pretty hefty, huh? So now their endowment is only at $37.5 billion. <laughs> Harvard can literally never run out of money. It's not possible. Like, I know this is terrible, but if they just put it like in a, you know, in a savings vehicle, like a, just a, they went to PNC and opened up a savings account. And so we're just gonna put our 37.5 billion here. I don't think you can do that. Right, all the financial advisors are going to stop now. Stop talking. It's bad advice. Right? They literally cannot exhaust $37.5 billion. They can lose $2 billion and they fire their fund manager and they kind of move on to something else and rearrange some of their investments. Are they in any jeopardy? No. You in Jesus Christ have a wealth that far exceeds $37.5 billion. It is a treasure beyond all treasures. It is riches beyond all riches. You will never outgive God. You will never be so generous that you will exhaust the storehouse of the riches you have in Jesus. It will never happen. The point of the sermon today is this, is that if what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 8 is true, that it's the incarnation that moves us to be generous, then by understanding the incarnation, not just in that sort of passing way, every December I reflect on it a little bit and I put my nativity scene up on the TV stand, right, to look at every now and again and I open up my calendar every day and go day one, day two, day three, or if you're like our house, you write in chalk on the Santa chalkboard, eight more days till Christmas, right? Not just those kinds of reflections, but a, a bending of the mind and the heart around the reality of the mystery that God has become a human being. Now, I know if you've grown up in the church, you hear that all the time and you think to yourself, yeah, I, I get it. But it should astound us. It should regularly astound us that this mystery that God has put on flesh, we're the only religion in the whole world that believes that has happened. Islam looks at us and says, you are, you are dead wrong because there's only one God and that means that, that this human being, Jesus, can be a prophet, but he can't be God. Right? Hinduism teaches that there are appearances of gods that show up on the planet, but they kind of come and go in this fickle way, and they're not really human. They're just appearing on the earth for a time, and then they're gone. We are the only religion in all the world that teaches that God became human and now, and now is human for all eternity future. Jesus never took off his body. That's why we believe in a bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but a bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He will never, from this day forward, cease to have a body and cease to be fully God and fully man. It's a miracle. And you have been given astounding riches by that incarnation. So let's consider a couple of those. I wanna give you four of them today. The first one I'm gonna linger on the most because it's the most important. In fact, all the other ones are really just derivative of this first one, and it's this. Jesus, we saw last week, became relationally poor. He became relationally poor. We are relationally rich. Now, we said last week, for the first and only time in all of, of eternity, 
when Jesus hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, he was separated relationally from the Father, the one whom he'd only known perfect fellowship with, perfect union with for all eternity. Jesus was separated from him because he bore the sins of humankind and then the wrath of God in accordance with those sins was poured out upon him so that it wouldn't be poured out upon you and I. In that moment, and that moment only, he knew what it was to be separated from God and he became relationally poor. And it's through his relational poverty that we have become relationally rich. Here's how Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says it. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a description of our relational poverty before God, that we were separated from him, led around as if by the nose by our desires. We couldn't stop them. They just were. We just became whatever we were led to be by our flesh, by the desires that we had and whatever our mind could conjure. We followed that around. That was our condition, separated from God, relationally impoverished, and then two of the best words in all of the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even before we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We could stop there and it would be enough, right? We could stop there and say, oh, I was dead and you made me alive. There's not, what else could I ask for? How dare I ask for anything more than that? What else could I hope for? What else could I imagine that you might do? But look, he goes on as if to say, oh, no, I'm going to embarrass you with riches. Because he says, then, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, that's with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You catch what he said there? He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He's not just saying he will, he's saying he has. That's our position, that we are relationally now tied. Now that idea of being seated with Christ in the heavenly places has a number of implications. Implications of power and authority. Implications in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we will judge the world, those who are followers of Jesus. That's an interesting idea. I'm not exactly sure how that plays out, but we're told that will happen. This idea of being seated next to Christ who's seated on his throne and has authority. But if nothing else, maybe the most basic level that we can understand that what they're saying is, I didn't just make you alive, I gave you a relationship with God. If you're seated next to someone, you have what? A relationship with them. That's the idea that Paul is driving home. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So as if it weren't enough for him to simply say, you were dead and I've made you alive, I'm actually going to seat you with me so that you might have a relationship with me, so that you might know me. Now, as I said, God doesn't just make us alive in Christ. He seats us with him. He gives us a relationship. So let's, now let's make sure that when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the incarnation, that we don't bury the lead, 
right? Because I could stand up here and I could talk to you about a number of different ways that you have been made rich and I have been made rich by Jesus becoming poor. But the first and primary and most important way that we've been made rich is we have been made relationally rich because we have a relationship with God. What else would we point to? What else could be better than that? As if to say, oh, that's nice, but these other things are actually more important or better than that. No, the most important thing that we have, the most important way that we've been made rich by Jesus' poverty is that we have been given a relationship with God. So let's think for a moment. Here's what I did this week as I thought about this. I, uh, I, I came to know Jesus when I was seven years old. That's when I placed my faith in him. Um, and thanks to parents who were faithful and brought me up in the church and thanks to a Sunday school teacher who scared the living daylights out of me talking about hell and <laughs> it's true, it happened. Um, just a number of factors came into play. When I was seven, I placed my faith in Jesus. Now, some of you, it was younger for you. Some of you, it was, it was last week. Some of you, not yet, you're considering, Right? But if we've been made relationally rich, then my conviction is that every Christian should be experience a type of rich relationship day in, day out with God. Otherwise, what's, what's the point? There should be a richness in our experience. So I just tried to sit back and reflect and say, what's life been like since I was seven? What, what have I experienced since that day when I was seven? I said, okay, I'm yours. I'm just... I'll, let me tell you a few things. I made notes for myself. I wrote a few things down. This is the experience of having a relationship with God. This is how we become relationally rich. And some of you could add to this. Some of you would say things other than this, but let me tell you what I wrote. It's like the feeling you get when your dad puts his arm around you and says, I'm proud of you. You feel you can conquer the world. And some of you have dads who have never done that but you can experience that in God. That's the most amazing. Now I'm, I'm, man, I'm so fortunate. My dad did that. My dad put his, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like a dad putting his arm around you and say, you got what it takes, man. I'm behind you. I'm for you. You can, you can step into the chaos and the scariness of the world. I mean, gosh, just think about, think about marriage. How does any, guys, how does any dude get married and think they've got what it takes? Women are a mystery to us. You want to start ta talking into a dark world. Like, I don't understand anything about what's going on in these emotional caverns here. Like we need dads to put their arm around us and go, that's daunting. Get in there. You can do it. You know? And, and the brilliance is, I mean, I still feel that. I still feel all the time God putting his arm around me and saying, I'm proud of you. Get in there. Don't be scared. Go. It's like the feeling of strength just kind of coursing through you, but not that showy kind of strength that's like, you know, which way is the gym sort of, sort of strength. Not that showy kind, which I never had. It's the understated quiet kind of strength that you always find rising, the current of it always rising just enough for the next challenge at hand. So that you know you're completely dependent. You never thought the strength was really yours, so to speak. But it's always just enough. And remind you, I'm completely dependent upon this source of strength, and yet it's always there. It never goes away. It keeps flooding and filling that moment in just all the right ways. I'll never be without enough. 
It's the sense of seeing things clearly. It's the sense that I actually see the world the way it was intended to be seen. Like I see the purposes and realities of the unseen things that have been opened to me. I see what, what God intended when he made the world, what this was all supposed to be about. It's the feeling of being safe. It's the feeling of being safe. Now, that doesn't mean being in a place where you don't encounter danger and difficulty. But there's this, there's this overwhelming sense that there's, there's somebody really big right behind me. And whoever picks on me is picking on him. And even if they destroy the body, even if he's like, yeah, I'll let him, I'll let him kill him. It's really not, you just have this profound sense. It's like, what, what's so bad about that? And then I just get to turn around and go be with him. It just takes fear. It just, it just squashes it. It just, it's the feeling of always having someone to talk to who's just the best listener. Like that no matter where you go, like I don't have to go find somebody to talk to. There's somebody to talk to always that's right there and it is realer than the human person that I could go talk to. That conversation is, I know this is really a talk, that's about developing your prayer life, right? This sense of conversation with God. But I have found one of the most valuable things in having a relationship with God is I just, I just almost don't stop talking to him. I just am constantly in conversation. And he's just, he's always listening. And it's that kind of listening, like you ever listen to somebody who when they listen to you, they don't even have to respond. Just the fact that they heard you makes you feel comforted somehow. That's what it's like. It's like talking to someone like that. It's the sense of not being in charge of anything, but being completely free and unencumbered, which is weird because the world tells us that in order to really be free, you have to be free to make your own choices and do what you want to do. But being in a relationship with God is like knowing you're not in charge at all and yet feeling this sense of I am most free. I am completely free. I, can't, I, I don't know how to describe that. I wish I had better words for it. It's just this, it, it is what you feel when you're in Jesus. It's like, yeah, I'm just free. It's the feeling of being on an adventure with your best friend all the time. One of the, one of the best things uh, for Amanda and I, when we got married, we lived in separate towns and then uh, we got married and Amanda moved to Austin where I was already living. And so she kind of adopted my world. You know, I already had friends and I already had a church where I was going and working. And so she kind of jumped into all that. And so it was like this whole, everything was brand new for her, but nothing was brand new for me. And that was fine. She handled it with such grace and she walked through that really, uh, really, really well. But one of, the, one of the best things for our marriage has been moving up here because it was completely new for both of us. And we were on this adventure together. It was like, I don't know anybody, you don't know anybody, we're diving into this together, here we go. And just being on an adventure with your best friend is like the coolest thing ever. And that's, that's what it's like having a relationship with God because it's just one constant adventure through the world. And everywhere you go, he's doing something. Like you've never beat God to any location, right? You show up there and he's, oh yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I've been doing some stuff. Check it out. You're like, no way. It's really cool. Really cool is what pastors are. It's really good language there. It's like awesome. <laughs> it's a feeling of continual awe. It's just being in a relationship with God. It's like, it's, it's like constantly being in awe, not just of what he's doing, but who he is. Like being connected. Like you ever been around someone who's like, seems 
really, really talented and really amazing and everything they do like works and they're brilliant and they're athletic and they're smart and they're well-read. And like, as much as you wanna really be in awe of them, you kind of resent them a little bit. Kind of like, I'm not as cool as you. You're pretty, that's ridiculous. It's different being in a relationship with God because there's not that sense of like, there's just not that sense of, oh man, you're so much better than I am. He's like, you are so much better than I am. And you're just in awe. Last night I was doing the dishes and Amanda was out and the girls were in bed and Deacon was in bed. I was doing the dishes and um, singing, I had a Christmas song on and I was, it, was, it was alluding to the idea that Jesus had come as a baby with his brow prepared for the crown of thorns. And that image of, of the crown of thorns pressed into the, the, the child. Of course, I have a one-year-old son. So I just started weeping, just in awe of God's mercy and grace, just in awe of that kind of love and wisdom. To be in a relationship with God is just to constantly be in awe. It's like finding you can't stop your heart from loving other people even when you don't want to because they're not going to love you back. Now, sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily like this one all the time, right? Because... When you know people aren't gonna love you back and they'll take advantage of the fact that you love them and are gonna be gracious to them, that's gonna happen. Um, but when you're in a relationship with God, it's like you can't stop. You, you may not want to love them, but you can't stop because he's in you. Being in a relationship with God is like being compelled to love again and again. It just never shuts off. It's overwhelming. It's the sense that every moment is sacred because God is in every moment with you, even in the most mundane things like doing the dishes. It's being corrected a lot. I mean a lot. Being corrected a lot. But never in a way that you feel hopeless or pushed away. Now, I, I don't know how he does it. Because as much as I need to be corrected, you would think over time I would really get, it would just be like awful. Like, stop correcting me. Like, if any person tried to do that, it would just get real old. But God has a way of correcting you, changing your course, saying, that's not good. That's not good. But never in a way that you feel he's pushing you out or pushing you away or not bringing you in. This being last one I was going to mention. It's being told often, often, that you have value and that it has nothing to do with how smart or good-looking or talented you are. You just have value because he loves you. It's the only love in the whole world that can, that can give you value. Other, other people love because you have value. He loves and it gives you value. Do you see the difference between those two things? The love of God gives people value. He doesn't love because they have value. There's no, love, no other love like it. It's completely different. It's completely unique, so... Now, I know some of you have walked with Jesus for a lot longer than I have, and you would probably point to 50 other things, but that's just, that's just me pondering this week. What's it like to have a relationship with God from seven to now? You know, coming up on 40 next month. So what is that, 33 years? It's just... <laughs> Somebody just wooed 40. I don't know how to take that. Here's how, there's a great old hymn called Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. Anybody heard of that one? Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. Maybe one of the most lyrically rich hymns. Uh, Indelible Grace has done 
uh, kind of an updated musical version, but the, the lyrics stay the same. Listen to, I wanted to read them all, but there's like six or seven verses. So listen to these two verses from it because it describes again a little bit of this idea of what's it like to have a relationship with God. It says, man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. Oh, t'were not in joy to charm me were thy joy unmixed with thee. In other words, he's saying nothing could charm him, draw his affections if it's not a joy that comes from God. And no grief could harm him. No grief could harm him because his love, he is in the love of God. Then he says in the final verse, listen to this is great language. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. How good is that? Armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. He means days of journeying and wondering. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. Isn't that good? Now, we said at the very beginning that all of this is related to becoming more generous. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that those people who know they've been made rich in Christ become generous. So let's ask ourselves, how does being relationally rich in all the ways we just described, how does it make us generous? Well, the answer is really a simple one and it's just this. We become relational, we become generous because we love God with such an overwhelming love in response to his love for us that there's nothing we won't give. Anything he asks for, the response is, of course. Absolutely. And we do that, don't we? When we love someone, we give generously, don't we? When your kids whom you love ask you for something, do you go, no, just to be mean? Even if you say no, you say no. Why? Because it's what's best for them and you know it. Right? We give generously, overwhelmingly generously to those that we love. So when God says, be generous in your praise, be generous in your affection, be generous with your money, be generous with your time, when we know how rich we are relationally with God, our only response can be, yes, of course, yes, absolutely. It's generosity born out of love, which is powerful. Okay, now I'm gonna spend less time on the next three. I just wanna hit them. Because that first one is really, like I said, the most important one. But let's look. Let's look at these last couple. The second one I wanted to point out. We said last week Jesus became poor in possessions. He was born into a materially poor endeavor. In fact, because all things in earth belonged to him, even if he had been born into a palace and had all the riches of the world, it still would have been less than he actually owned, less than what he was really worthy of owning, and yet he came into abject poverty, right? Born in a stable, placed in the hay, in the barn, right? And he had almost nothing. Through his poverty of possession, we become rich or can become rich in eternal possessions. Look at what Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 say. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
This is Jesus talking, and we need to remember that Jesus doesn't have any hesitation about encouraging us to pursue heavenly wealth, saying to us, store up treasures in heaven. I want you to pursue being wealthy in the currency of eternity. In fact, don't build up treasure here that is temporary. Build up treasure there. The idea is what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our gifts and skills and abilities, all matters and all has an ability to produce eternal wealth or to simply produce a wealth that will die when we die. And you have to choose which type of wealth matters most. Now, any business person worth their salt, if given the opportunity to build treasure that will last for, say, 80 years or to build up a financial income that will last for all eternity, is going to choose which one? The latter, right? Clearly, this is the, it's, it's a common sense appeal to making us generous, isn't it? Look, if you're generous now, it will build up treasure for you in eternity. Wealth like you've never imagined. Rewards like you've never imagined that will be fuel for you to worship Jesus with when you get there. You'll take all this eternal treasure and worship him with it. So store it up now. Make yourself rich in the currency of eternity. That's what he's getting at in Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up treasure here. It's going to last 80 years max. It's not worth it. Store up treasure there. Now, how does that make us generous? Well, I said it's, it's a simple common sense, right? It's, it's what Jim Elliott is talking about. This idea is what Jim Elliott, who's a missionary to South America, who was killed by the people he came to share Jesus with because they had um, never heard of Jesus. And after a while, they didn't take kindly to Jim. And so they ended up killing him. He's got a famous story. Many of you may know it. But he said this, it's probably his most famous quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a good word to us. Now, perhaps an objection there, because perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but Trent, I mean, isn't that a really a self-centered approach to generosity? I mean, aren't you really just looking to get something for yourself which somehow undermines the generosity here. Like if I give now so that I get later, doesn't that just seem like I'm really doing something self-centered? Isn't that not helpful? And it's totally normal that we think that way because often we recognize in the world there is this competition that we feel between building up wealth in the world and glorifying God and that those two things don't always go hand in hand, right? There are times where we recognize that if we're going to choose to build up wealth, we're going to have to sacrifice glorifying God or if we're going to choose to glorify God, we're going to have to sacrifice growing our wealth. But the reason that's not true in eternity is because those two things are not opposed to one another. Eternal currency and the glory of God don't oppose one another. They go hand in hand with one another. In other words, to maybe put it more simply is this. If you're going to glorify God, you're going to have to be rich in eternal treasure. You will not be able to glorify him unless you spend your earthly treasure to become heavenly rich. And to become heavenly rich doesn't compete with the glory of God. It reinforces the glory of God because you have more fuel with which to worship him. Does that make sense? You guys follow that line of argument? Okay. So let's look at number three. Jesus became poor in worship. We will be rich in glory. Now we said last week 
that Jesus should have been worshipped by all living things at every moment of his life, and he wasn't. He became poor not in worshiping God, but as one who should have received worship. That's what we mean when we say he became poor in worship, the worship that was owed to him. His poverty means we will be rich in glory. Listen to, I mean, I could go so many places, but let's just look at Romans 8, verse 18 through 21 and 29 through 30. It says this, for I consider, Paul writing, says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That last phrase is immensely important. Obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying is that he's giving a voice to all the created world who is looking at human, humanity as the pinnacle of creation and saying, when they're redeemed and made new, we will be redeemed and made new. There's gonna come a day when Jesus returns, he's gonna restore all of the created world to how it was intended to be, and we will go first. So when he says... The freedom of the glory of the children of God, what he's saying is you and I, if we're in Christ, will be something magnificently glorious one day. So glorious that all of creation is longing for the day when that will come to be. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now there's the glory being conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory is coming. Listen to how John says it. First John chapter three, verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are made in God's image. And when Jesus comes back, those of us who have placed our faith in him will finally have that reflection back. We will finally reflect the glory of God. Now, we will not be glorious as he is glorious. He will be glorious above all things independent of anything. We are glorious in a way that is derived from him. Our glory is because of our link to him, our being remade in his image. So it's not an independent glory. It's a dependent glory, which is underneath the type of glory he will have, but it will be an immense glory nonetheless. When you are in Jesus, because of his incarnation, it has become possible not just for us to build a kind of eternal treasure, not just to have a relationship with God, but also to know by faith that we will be glorious one day. That it's coming, that it's assured, that it's guaranteed, that it's not a maybe, it's a will happen. And when we know that, so here's the question. Well, how does knowing that make us how does that make us generous? In what way does that make us generous? So let's just think about one way, all right? Let's get off of monetary generosity because that's where our minds always run. We gotta keep pulling our minds back just from that type of generosity. We gotta think about generosity in so many capacities. If you know 
that one day you will be made glorious in Jesus. Guess what kind of generosity becomes open to you now? You can praise others. You can sing their praises because here's what happens. Other people do stuff well and we, some of us, I'll own it, okay? We feel a sense of competitiveness, like, oh, they're better than me. I I need to be better than them. Or we don't delight in the accomplishments of other people. Why? Because we feel like life's a competition and we gotta win. Or because somehow they're doing something really well reflects, makes us look less, right? It's the whole grade school thing of like tear others down to look better yourself. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, don't, don't just look at me like you don't know. You know, right? We've done it since we were two, right? I mean, the second we can start tearing other people down so that we look better, I mean, we've, we've done that our whole lives. But when you know that you will be made glorious in Christ, guess what you don't have to do? You don't have to point at yourself anymore. You don't have to say, look at me, I'm good enough. Look at me, how wonderful I've done. You don't have to throw your resume out in those conversations that you keep doing, you know? Like, oh, well, yeah, I did this. You know, where you're looking for that inroad in the conversation to mention that thing that's like, it it does not fit the topic of conversation at all, but you found a way to worm it in there so that everyone will think you're great. You don't have to do that anymore. Why don't you have to do that anymore? Because you will be glorious and it will be enough. You don't need to point people to your accomplishments, your achievements anymore, which frees you up to be really good at at praising others and affirming them and telling them, that is amazing. I love that you're able to do that. That's, That's powerful. That's awesome. If you want to become generous with your affections and with your praise, you need to know that you will be glorious one day so you don't have to worry about trying to get that glory now. You can give it to others. You can say to them, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, it's astounding. I can't do that at all. It's amazing that you can do that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? If you're looking for a way out of the resume building club in conversations, that's the way out. Know that you will be glorious. Last one, Jesus became poor in power. We are rich in power. We said last week that Jesus was born as an infant, right? Jesus had immense power at his disposal. We saw that. We we see that he calmed the storms, controlled nature, raised the dead. So clearly he had immense power. But when he came in, he came in as a baby, unable to lift his own head. So we saw that he became poor in power. We have become rich in power Look at the power he describes that is available to us that we have in him. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you know what Paul is telling you? 
you have been placed in a fight. It's not a fight against flesh and blood. It is a fight against spiritual powers of darkness that wage war against God and righteousness and goodness and truth. And you are in that fight. And do you know what else he just told you? You have everything you need to be in that fight. Because of the incarnation, what has been made available to you is the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the gospel of peace for your feet and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which you can wield as a weapon against darkness, against God's enemy. Sounds like we've got a little power at our disposal, doesn't it? He became powerless that we might become powerful. We have become rich in power now. Power can corrupt, but power from God makes us generous because he has shared his power with us, so we want to share ours with others. Do you get the distinction? When people crave power, worldly power, it makes them corrupt because it plays on the worst parts of a human being to want to be autonomous and in charge and in control. But when you recognize that you have great power, but it's power gifted to you by God, that kind of power makes you share the power you have with others. It makes you generous. So that rather than saying, I'm in charge and everyone listen to me, you invite others to the table and you listen to their voice and you figure out how to empower them to do what God made them to do. Not just make them subject to what God made you to do. Gospel movements happen because of right understanding of the power of God gifted to us. It's when we have wrong understandings of power that gospel movements turn into personality cults. Gospel movements are always about shared power. They're always about people being empowered with the weapons of God to do the thing that God has made them to do. And no gospel movement goes forward without shared power being distributed amongst God's people so that they can do what God made them to do and go where only they can go. Go where God has made them and wired them to go. Personality cults can grow for a while on the, strength of a, on the strength of an individual's personality and charisma, but eventually they die out because when power is not shared, power can't go forward. You follow me? One of the things that we are dying to do here all the time is to empower you to live for Christ right where he's placed you. That's why we don't do a whole lot of, hey, bring, bring them to church so that we can tell them say, you go tell them. You have a unique voice. You have been uniquely empowered by God for his mission in his world in the exact place where he sent you. I can't do that. The person to your left and right can't do that. You can do it. Because God has equipped you and shared his power with you. Hello. He has shared his, the, he, he's the only one that has a right to not share power. And he has shared his power with you. The incarnation has made you rich in power so that you might be generous with that power. Friends, here's my encouragement to you. 
Keep digging into the mystery of the incarnation. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, marvel that in the seemingly most mundane moments of Jesus' life and ministry, his mere presence on the earth was an awe-inspiring, earth-shattering miracle. The result will be that you will become generous. You will find yourself moving, uh, giving more money away, quicker to offer words of affirmation and praise, more willing to share what you know that will benefit others, and overflowing with affection and expressing it. Let it take hold of you. Let the incarnation, the event which has divided human history in two, let it take hold of your heart and your mind so that you would know the joy of generosity. Let's pray. So, Lord, we come before you and we pray that your word would have its way with us, that you would teach and instruct us. Make us generous, Lord. Make us generous. Remind us that we can never exhaust the riches we have in you. So we want to follow you into all the places where you're leading. We want to follow you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make it so. As we sing to you now, Lord, as we sing your praises, we pray that they would be praises that are liberal and overflowing out of our lives because of how generous you have been with us. You became poor so that we might become rich through your poverty and we love you for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.